today we are with the C. Boyden Gray Center for this study of the administrative state in our podcast series called Pulse of the Court. It's been several months since we have recorded an episode, but now we've got some late-breaking decisions here at the end of the term, and I have two um, great and emerging scholars here to talk with us about the court's decision yesterday, June 30th, in West Virginia versus EPA, one of the final two decisions handed down in what really was a blockbuster term, seeing the court handle issues such as um, guns, abortion, overruling Roe versus Wade, and some very significant administrative law decisions. And so I have two individuals who write in the areas of uh, administrative law and actually more broadly constitutional interpretation scholarship, and will tell us a little bit more about some of their work later this episode. But they've also written specifically about questions of delegation, meaning are there or should there be any limits on how much power Congress uh, delegates to administrative agencies since Congress has been um, given by the Constitution, vested with all legislative power. Does that requirement, does that authority given exclusively to Congress in any way impact um, the kind of authority that Congress can then in turn assign to agencies? Or if Congress too broadly legislates, would that be delegating its power too much to agencies to be policymakers instead? That question then leads to some other issues that were more before the court in the West Virginia versus EPA decision. Once Congress has handed over power, how will the courts and agencies look at the scope of an agency's authority under a congressional statute? Does an agency need to be really careful to narrowly read its authority? Should the agency read its authority as broadly as possible? Is there a way with some of these general vague statutes uh, for uh, the agency to just get it just right and interpret its authority within the range of the statute? So the court yesterday in West Virginia versus EPA essentially found unlawful a very significant regulation promulgated by the Obama administration in 2015 known as the Clean Power Plan that was going to deal with um deal with carbon emissions and essentially found that the Obama EPA exceeded its authority under the Clean Air Act, a little provision called Section 111D that essentially was going to authorize or does authorize the EPA to come up with performance standards for existing power plants. And in a nutshell, the court found that EPA in the 2015 rule improperly used a provision that was really just supposed to authorize it to impose a performance standard standard keeping in place existing sources and instead use that to more broadly create rules that would actually shift power generation from coal-based plants and even natural gas-based plants to more renewable sources. And the court said that that was too extensive of, a, of an authority to find within that statute, that the statutory provision at issue didn't allow shifting sources, shutting things down for all intents and purposes, but just trying to make existing sources a little bit cleaner. So we're going to talk about the impact of that decision today. We're going to talk about a pesky but very fascinating for ad law folks doctrine called the major questions doctrine. What does that mean? What does the court's in, uh, imposition of the major questions doctrine and the decision yesterday mean for regulations even beyond the EPA? And did the court yesterday, in fact, do something new or has the major questions doctrine been with us all along? More, Justice Kagan raises a, a criticism, a significant criticism, uh, an attack really in her dissent saying that the majority is actually not textualist in any way and that the major, major questions doctrine actually goes away from the constitutional instruction to interpret statutes as they've been passed by Congress. So we're going to talk about whether that is indeed correct. So first, let me introduce our guests and then we'll turn things over to them. So we have Chad Squiteri, who has been practicing law with Gibson Dunn and will be joining Catholic University as an assistant professor of law in the fall. And specifically, he is also going to be working with the Project on Constitutional Originalism and the Catholic Intellectual Tradition. He has written pieces that have been published in the Missouri Law Review, among other publications, and written on delegation and interpretation. And so we're excited to have him with us today. And then we have Ellie Nakmani, who is recently graduated magna from Harvard Law School, will be clerking for Judge Steve Menasche on the Second Circuit. Um, and he's keeping busy this summer, also working as a senior research fellow at the Gray Center and and then writing a Sports Illustrated column. He is also uh, publishing scholarship and had a had a um, 
brief article on the Northwest Ordinance from the 1700s and the Delegation Doctrine uh, published online recently. And so I uh, would love to hear from both Chad and Ellie on their pieces and also on their view of the constitutional and statutory impact of yesterday's decision. So Ellie, why don't I first turn to you? In a nutshell, what did the Supreme Court hold yesterday? Why And why did they even reach out to find the 2015 Clean Power Plan unlawful? Yeah, so a little bit of background I think is important here. This uh, proceeded really, I think, in three parts. So first is you had the Obama administration in 2015. Its EPA attempts to impose the Clean Power Plan. Uh, that eventually got up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court stopped the Clean Power Plan from, from going into effect. Obviously, there's the election in 2016. The Trump administration comes in with a different regulatory philosophy at its EPA. It then says, we don't have the statutory authority to impose the Clean Power Plan. So it stops it. And then the Biden administration comes in. And it's not clear exactly what the Biden administration wanted to do. But I think their first priority was, let's get this case out of the Supreme Court so we don't get a ruling like this. So the Biden administration says, well, hold on, we're now thinking through what exactly we're going to impose in terms of environmental regulation under this or other provisions of the Clean Air Act, not necessary to rule on it. The court rejects that argument, says we can rule on this because what's going on here is what's called a voluntary cessation of conduct. Essentially, that the uh, only reason that the case is moot or the case you know, shouldn't be heard is because of uh, the Biden administration's voluntary conduct saying we're not going to do this regulation, or at least right now we're, we're not interested in imposing this regulation. So the court goes ahead and reaches the merits of the case, reaches the actual statutory question here, which is, does Section 111D, this ancillary provision of the Clean Air Act, really what Chief Justice Roberts called a gap filler in the statute, authorize a sweeping national implications plan like the Clean Power Plan? And the Supreme Court said no, that simply authorizing the uh, federal agency, in this case, the EPA, to set a best system of emission reduction at individual sources is not sufficient to confer the authority to make a wide-ranging plan like the Clean Power Plan. Uh, and so the court said to the EPA, you don't have the statutory authority to do this. Um, the court rested its holding on the major questions doctrine, which I think we'll, we'll discuss more in general. But this was, you know, we talked about non-delegation. This was a statutory interpretation case, not so much a non-delegation case, though delegation certainly lurking in the background of, of this and a lot of the other agency interpretation cases. Well, thanks, Ellie. So, Chad, what are we what are we missing here? Do you agree that it was uh, proper and teed up for the court to rule yesterday and any particular um, big takeaways from the decision that you'd like to add? Yeah, I think uh, the court was right to, to rule in the decision uh, as uh, that I think one of the takeaways from the decision will be the initial part of the majority opinion talking about the difference between standing and mootness uh, and uh, essentially the um, uh, the state petitioners here were injured, uh, given the, re the repeal uh, of the of the uh, Trump rule, which implicitly uh, in incorporated the appeal of the Obama rule. So I think state petitioners were injured uh, by essentially that Obama EPA rule being back into effect, which required them to regulate uh, energy companies more aggressively. Uh, as uh, Ellie mentioned, I think this is going to have um, wide uh, reaching uh, uh, effects throughout the administrative state. Uh, more outside just environmental policy uh, as well. And uh, I think uh, I've, I've written a piece about how I think that uh, the major questions doctrine is inconsistent with textualism. I'd be happy to, to talk about that uh, as well. Uh, I think Justice Kagan might have hit, hit, a, hit a good point in her dissent. All right. Well, I want to turn to you in a few minutes to talk about your piece. Um, I mean, first, I guess I'd like to ask, and I, I'm happy for either of you uh, to weigh in if you have thoughts. So you you all both seem to agree that it was proper for the court to rule yesterday. As a practical matter, however, the Biden administration has moved on and does not, at least according to what it said, what wasn't going to be reissuing the 2015 Clean Power Plan anyway. Instead, it was working on a new regulation. So 
what what kind of impact then in a concrete way will this particular holding have on the Biden administration? I mean, is it going to just I mean, other than just some general principles, is it going to not be that relevant because the Biden administration is working on a new regulation? Or do you anticipate this ruling is going to tie the Biden administration's hands? What's off the table now for the Biden administration after the holding yesterday in West Virginia versus EPA? But I, I think the initial uh, Obama EPA rule is off the table to the extent that the Biden uh, administration was thinking to go back to that. Um, I think the concrete result here might be what George, uh, Justice Gorsuch and the majority uh, were getting at. That is going to essentially shift uh, decision making authority back from the agency over to Congress. Uh, my understanding of both the majority and uh, Justice Gorsuch's concurrence is that the EPA, if they wanted to implement uh, the Obama era rule, they could, but we're going to need to see new uh, uh, language from Congress. Uh, so rather than having a, a policy centered at the EPA, uh, perhaps it'll be a political tension at Congress. Congress could pass a new statute and give uh, the EPA that authority. Yeah. So, I mean, basically, if the Obama administration or the Biden administration had not been, you know, being entirely forthright or had planned to put out to, to, to revisit some plan, uh, parts of the 2015 Clean Power Plan. It can't do anything that was ruled on by the court yesterday. But I mean, how is the Biden or the Biden administration going to evaluate things moving forward? The statute says that the EPA has the authority to impose a performance standard. The, the majority of the court suggested that it was going too far if the standard was actually designed to shift power from one source to another. So if it was going to actually reach the performance standard by shutting certain parts of industry down entirely, like certain categories of plants. So does the Biden administration, what does it do now? Does it just have a less significant performance standard? Is it going to be writing its new rule to just explain how it's not going to be shutting down coal powered plants? I mean, is it a problem if any plant can't reach the standard that the EPA established? Does that mean that it's gone too far? So that might be true, that last point. If, if an individual uh, source is not able to meet the standard. That seems like it could be an issue uh, under at least the way that I read the majority's opinion. I think the main distinction here is between the ability of the EPA to impose regulations that impact individual sources and consciously uh, operates as a regulation of individual sources one by one versus a, a sort of collective power plan that attempts to reorient the way in which the national power grid works. So instead of thinking, you know, we want to broadly shift from coal to natural gas and then coal and natural gas to more renewable sources, what I think EPA needs to do here, if it wants to regulate under, again, what is really an ancillary provision, and I think the, the nature of its ancillariness probably sets some boundaries for what the, the reasonableness of uh, the standard that it can impose is. But EPA is going to need to work with the states. It's probably going to need to work with industry um, to set forth a, a more reasonable regulation and something that's not as sweeping or as far-reaching um, uh, an authority claim as the Clean Power Plan purported to be. So we've talked already in this podcast a couple of times about something that we're calling the major questions doctrine. Chad, could you just tell us briefly in a nutshell what that doctrine is, or at least how the court described it in the decision yesterday? Sure. So the major question doctrine uh, has been kicking around at least for a couple decades, although Justice Gorsuch traces it back to the 1800s, I believe. Uh, but it really came into its own and in, in, in this uh, opinion yesterday. It was actually the first time that the majority explicitly used that term. Uh, the major question doctrine essentially asked um, if, if a, a, a question that's being answered by an administrative agency, if it is of a vast political and economic significance, then the court is going to look a little more skeptically at, at the claim that that power has been delegated. And it's going to require a, a lot more clear uh, language from Congress delegating that authority to the administrative agency to answer that a question of vast economic and political importance. So, Ellie, anything to add on the contours of the doctrine as the court states yesterday? Yeah, so I, I think uh, we ordinarily thought of it as just about the questions of uh, national, economic, or political significance. But I, it seems that the court adds this this idea of, of the broadness and the novelness of the agency's claimed authority. So now, what we might also look to is 
has the agency claimed this authority in the past? Is it is it consistent with the agency's claims of authority under a given statute? And ordinarily, you have, as uh, as one article has described it, an old statutes, new problems issue, wherein agencies look to these statutes from many, many years ago and say, we have this new authority to promulgate new regulation under a statute from the 60s or the 70s that it may fairly not have contemplated that sort of regulation. And so if the agency is now for the first time claiming that authority, and that authority is pretty broad, um, or in the court even introduces, if the agency has gone to Congress and asked for the authority more explicitly and Congress has said no, um, that stuff all might factor in. And so the, the major questions inquiry seems to be, if not just clarified, maybe even a little more extensive than we thought it was. I mean, what you're suggesting, I find quite interesting, right? Because, I mean, presumably administrative agencies are in place to be developing ongoing solutions and regulating, and they've got the statute. And so, I mean, is it really the case, and is the court saying now that essentially any new use of authority adapted to new problems is going to be off the table? Is that too constraining? Justice Kagan begins her dissent by talking about the big problems with greenhouse gas emissions and how the uh, environment is really struggling. And essentially, this opinion is going to make it very challenging to rule. So, Chad, are we without hope? If, if you're somebody who likes uh, the uh, government stepping in to address climate change, is that now completely off the table after yesterday's ruling? Uh, I don't think uh, that it's off the table or without hope. Uh, it, it's really just a matter of, uh, to the extent that this is a uh, an agency puts forward a brand new idea for a decades-old statute, uh, the court is going to pause and, and, and think a little more skeptically about that claim. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that every time an agency uh, ha has a new unique idea, it's always going to be seen as skeptical. Um, but in instances like this, the court ha has indicated that it is going to view that a lot more skeptically. I think just the, um, a, a small point about the methodology I do think the initial step for the major questions doctrine is still uh, to say this is politically or an economically significant. And then as Justice Gorsuch lays out uh, in his concurrence, the oldness of the statute really comes in in the second section when the court is looking, has there been a clear command from Congress delegating this? And one of the factors that the court will look to to, to determine if there's that clear uh, statutory language is you know, the age of the statute and statutory scheme and other, and other things of that nature. Right. Okay. So essentially, at the end of the day, the question comes down, and I think this is for sure a theme that comes out in Justice Gorsuch's concurrence, but I think also the chief's majority opinion to a degree. Who decides? I mean, you know, climate change can be addressed. Congress really would have to initially give the agency the authority to um, address it. And it sounds like what we're saying and what the court's opinion was holding is that if we've got statutory provisions in this case, I believe one that was originally from the 19, from 1990, the rest of the um, Clean Air Act, parts of it are, are older even than that, um, that, we, that, the, that the statute really has to be clear about authorizing the action or at least directly authorize it. It can't be sort of a stretch or something that we're kind of guessing might be okay based on general purposes or goals. So when Justice Kagan writes in dissent, well, generally speaking, the Clean Air Act, actually, she, I don't want to mischaracterize it. She doesn't say generally speaking, but she says the Clean Air Act addresses and authorizes and actually instructs the EPA to, um, to regulate the environment and to regulate the air and make it clean. And so this regulation was, you know, the best means oriented to reach that goal. I guess the majority in the concurrence would say, well, that's not enough. It's not enough to generally fit within the terms of this old statute. We've got to see clearer language. Do you all think, um, based on the court's ruling yesterday, that the age of the statute is a critical component? If Congress just last year in 2021 had enacted the same provision, with with us all being aware of clean air, greenhouse gas debates, do we think the court's decision would have come down differently here, or would it still have found that the EPA was acting beyond its textual authority? So I, I think it's related uh, to a second point in the major questions doctrine, which is, has the agency claimed this authority before? 
So if the statute has been around, let's say since, um, let's say 1980, and in 1981, the agency made this claim of authority or an analogous seeming claim of authority, and it had been going on for 40 years and had been making that claim of authority, the age of the statute probably wouldn't matter. But the age of the statute might matter if it's passed 40, 50 years ago. And in that intervening period of time, the agency hasn't made such a claim. So we look to, uh, the court characterizes it the novelty of the claim. Um, and so the age of the statute may function as a way for that lack of claimed authority to accrue. But I think the age of the statute itself, so long as accompanied with um, agency action or claim of authority or claim of right near the inception of the statute, may actually function as as being fine. My, my downstream question now is, does this decision encourage agencies to, as soon as a statute comes down, immediately claim all authorities under the statute so as not to lose them as time goes on if we're going to start evaluating agency claims of rights? And then uh, another thing is, if we're evaluating, has the agency gone to Congress to ask for explicit statutory authority, even when it might already be on the books, is that going to discourage or, or change the way that, that uh, the president interacts with the legislature in terms of asking for authorities that, that the president might want to plausibly claim he already has? Yeah, I, I think that. Oh, go ahead. So I was going to say quickly, I think the last point Ali raised about agencies having incentive to aggressively use their authority pretty quickly uh, is absolutely correct. And even more in the weeds, I think perhaps in future rulemakings and preambles, uh, we might see agencies claiming, oh, we have very broad authority, uh, but in this rule, we're only doing this narrow thing, just laying that, uh, that ground point for the future. So, Chad, are you a textualist? I am a textualist and an originalist, yes. Okay, so Chad is a, a textualist and originalist, and earlier said something shocking. Shocking that Justice Kagan's here opinion might be right, and the chief and Justice Gorsuch, who would have been thought to be more textualist, might be wrong. And indeed, the chief's opinion was joined, including by the, with the chief, six justices, including um, individuals such as Justice Barrett, Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Thomas, who, of course, is quite a prominent originalist and textualist and believes in quite, um, you know, to, to a quite significant degree, holding the federal government's feet to the fire to be acting only within its Commerce Clause authority. So, Chad, how can it possibly be that a textualist would find themselves aligned more with Justice Kagan in this case than uh, with with the other six justices who were in the majority. Can you unpack that for us a little bit? Yeah, happy to do so. I'm in the somewhat awkward spot of thinking that the, the, the majority might have been uh, correct in the judgment, but I think they took the wrong way to get there. And I think the major questions doctrine is inconsistent with textualism. Um, so tell I, us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I, I, I uh, for those interested, I, I wrote an article expressing this a little more in detail called Who Determines Majorness? was published in the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy. And there I essentially argue that the major question doctrine is inconsistent with textualism for two reasons. And it's, it's, it calls on courts to engage in an ordinarily futile task, and it's a statutorily suspect task. So the ordinarily futile part is um, textualists believe that, you know, the 536 members involved in the legislative process and you know, Congress and the president, um, they all have different understandings of what might be important uh, and a statute. Uh, and all those understandings come together for the for the reasons that Justice Gorsuch wrote in his concurrence. It's important to have this dispersed view of, of uh, our elected lawmakers making laws. They come, they, they, make, they agree on a, a settled uh, statutory language. The major questions doctrine comes in that says the court saying, we as the court are inserting ourselves into this Article 1 section of the lawmaking process. We as the court think that this specific uh, issue is of uh, important political significance, so we are going to demand uh, a special statutory language. So I think that's inconsistent with uh, textualist ideas uh, uh, of how the legislative process works. And I also said I think it's statutorily suspect. Uh, and there I point to the Congressional Review Act. Uh, so the Congressional Review Act says that uh, it, it, it's a statute by Congress that says uh, agencies, when they answer major questions through, quote, major rules, that's a defined term in the statute, uh, those major rules are to be given effect unless Congress affirmatively enacts a, a new law saying, no, this major rule shall not go into effect. 
And the CRA's definition of major role tracks on to uh, very closely to the, the court's uh, uh, doctrine of major questions doctrine and that it considers political significance and economic significance. Uh, so, and importantly, the CRA uh, defines federal agency to essentially cover every single federal agency. So within the CRA, we have a congressional presumption saying, you know, we as Congress are, are envisioning that essentially every federal agency is going to be answering major rules, major questions through major rules, and those major rules are to be given legal effect unless we say as Congress differently. And I think the major questions doctrine just turns that up on its head. And I'll just add one more point that I think that this the major questions doctrine creates perverse incentives for litigants, uh, particularly at the lower courts. And I would just query whether those incentives are consistent with textualism, because now we have a situation where right off the bat, a litigant can go to court and say, oh, you know, Your Honor, here's some legislative history from Senator A, Senator B, showing that this issue before you uh, is really politically significant. And the opposing counsel will say, oh, we have legislative history from Senator C and D showing that it's not politically significant. And, you know, just query whether that type of inquiry is consistent with a textualist enterprise, as compared to maybe the, the methodology that Justice Thomas just laid out last week in Bruin, which is more focused on textual okay. history. Okay, so, I mean, it is the case for sure that the court repeatedly refers to the major questions doctrine being really um, limited to questions of national and economic um, national economic and political importance. And so I take your point that now, you know, one of the arguments in litigation and presumably one of the arguments the agency may or may not want to uh, talk about when it promulgates a rule and explains what it's doing and why it's not a major major question um, will have to do with whether it has national economic and political significance. But I mean, did the court yesterday clearly suggest that it was going to be willing to turn to legislative history to look at that? I mean, is that just one possibility? Is that I mean, a realistic possibility? What is the other evidence the court would look at? I, I think it's realistic. I was kind of shocked in the majority opinion. I mean, the chief cites legislative history when he talks about this uh, provision of statute being a backwater or, or something like that. Um, and, you know, I, it, just looking forward, I, I imagine, uh, you know, that things like citations like that might be even more common, which I just think undermines the, 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 the textualist uh, methodology. I think the better course of action would, because a certainly major questions doctrine, uh, as I've written before, is kind of like is scratching the non-delegation itch, right? It's, it's motivated by non-delegation. And the major questions doctrine is kind of seen as this halfway point. I think a more appropriate method would be to continue going forward with the re reinvigoration of the non-delegation doctrine, not this kind of halfway point that considers political importance, which I think um, is just not, not relevant. So I want to pause here on legislative history for some of our listeners who may not be as um, up to speed on the long decades of views that textualists have formed or the courts have formed on legislative history. So from a textualist standpoint, and uh, Ellie, maybe I'll turn to you. I mean, and then Chad, you can uh, tell us anywhere that we're wrong. I mean, is legislative history off the table for a textualist? Is there ever any appropriate way to incorporate it into one statutory interpretation? If one were going to do the full Scalia approach, since he um, was known as being a, a, a key incubator or proponent of the textualist methodology. Yeah, so Justice Scalia said, basically never will you use legislative history in the interpretation of a statute. It elevates uh, above the, the view of the Congress generally, the views of individual specific legislators who might have just been a little louder during the legislative process. And what really we're trying to do here is, as Justice Barrett has described, is be faithful agents of Congress. So I think when, when we're doing textualism generally, what we're trying to give effect to is the, the grant of the judicial power of the United States in Article 3 as it was understood at the time of the framing. And so when you have something like the uh, major questions doctrine, effectively the doctrine is functioning as a canon of statutory interpretation or a way that we, we filter our interpretation of statutes. There's two types of canons, right? There's the semantic or linguistic canons, which are just rules you know, pertaining to grammar or how Congress might write something. If a comma is here versus there, if there's items in a list, we might interpret other items in the list because we like it. And then you have what are called the substantive canons. You know, there, there's something called the rule of lenity, which is we typically construe uh, criminal laws in favor of defendants. There's something called the Indian canon, which actually used to be a, a, a 
rule of treaty interpretation between the United States and the uh, Indian tribes, where we'd rule if there was ambiguity, we'd, we'd resolve it in favor of the tribe. That developed into a canon of statutory interpretation. And now you have the major questions doctrine, which I, Justice Gorsuch's concurrence at least traces, I don't know if it was the major question doctrine, but at least traces something like a clear statement rule back to 1897. My thought would be that if, if a canon is going to be legitimate, what you might want to do is see, was it a canon that was understood at the time of the framing, the time of, of Article III's adoption, to be encompassed within the meaning of the judicial power of the United States? And so, you know, you would have the semantic canons, right, that are just sort of linguistics and, and how you do language. Um, those probably all get in. And then as to the substantive canons, the, one that, the ones that really have some sort of substantive impact on our statutory interpretation, you might look to the ones that had their, their history or tradition in the Anglo-American common law that would have been in, uh, understood to law interpreters at the time of the founding. The lenity gets in. The major questions, Doctor, I'm, I'm not as sure about. It seems to me to be more an, a, a political theory assumption. Maybe it's, it's right, right? Maybe Congress, when it, when it legislates, wants to be clear if it's going to grant major authority to agencies. Um, but I, I don't know that the major questions doctrine necessarily has its roots in the English common law to the extent that we would go back to the founding and say, yes, when the, the framers you know, ratified the Constitution, including Article 3, it would have been included within what the meaning of the judicial power of the United States was. If I could add one. So, Chad, do you agree that legislative history is always inappropriate for statutory interpretation? I, I don't think it's necessarily always inappropriate. I think it's best explained uh, why I, Justice Scalia said something along the lines of, you know, legislative history is about as relevant as a New York Times article about the topic. Uh, it helps us understand what, what the words might mean when, when individuals are talking about, uh, you know, a piece of legislation, but whether, whether that's in the legislative history, the New York Times, or a law review article, you know, these are all clues. I don't think it's, I think that the key point with legislative history is not to elevate it uh, over the, the Texas statute. Uh, Justice Barrett, as, as a law professor, had a great article about this, I think, called Congressional Insiders and Outsiders, something like that. Uh, I'd add that Ellie's point about identifying uh, the canons at, at the time of ratification, I, I think is exactly right. Um, an interesting point about Justice Gorsuch's concurrence is, you know, he cites a lot of then Professor Barrett, uh, who did a lot of great work on this, um, and, and, and her work is specifically tracing the canons uh, through history, the, the, the substantive uh, and linguistic canons. Um, but we don't see Justice Barrett signing on to the, the Justice Gorsuch's concurrence. And it could be for any number of reasons, who knows why, um, but it's not that interesting. Uh, uh, and I'll just add that, yes, I happen to have a disagreement here with uh, the majority and, and Justice Gorsuch uh, in this mythological issue. But I think that is the importance of what legal scholars uh, can do. We can help think through uh, doctrinal changes uh, a bit more than courts have uh, the fortune of doing. Courts are restricted. Uh, federal courts are restricted to answering, you know, the cases and controversies, controversies before then. They don't have the privilege of kind of like pontificating about broader issues. So I, I, I know that the, the, uh, many justices or the, the justice majority and the and concurrence are committed textualists. And I just think I hope that they'll continue to think through this and uh, perhaps um, pivot from the major questions doctrine back to a focus on the non-delegation doctrine. I mean, is there any... Uh, and we'll explain to us actually while we're here and pausing for a moment what the non-delegation doctrine is that you you're you're referencing. Yeah, so the non-delegation doctrine uh, essentially polices Congress's uh, ability to delegate its powers to other entities, and uh, specifically, we're talking about uh, administrative agencies. Uh, currently, the test is to ask whether Congress has given the administrative agencies a quote, intelligible principle. Uh, that test uh, has only been applied uh, to strike down. Uh, uh, statutes twice, both in 1935. Um, I, I have a theory about the non-delegation doctrine uh, as well. I actually argue in favor uh, of creating multiple doctrines uh, assigning to each of the legislative powers uh, that, that Congress uh, is afforded in the Constitution. Because if we look at the vesting clauses, we see Article um, Article 2 talks to the executive power singular, Article 3 
refers to the judicial power singular. Article one refers to all legislative powers, plural, here and granted. And we also have other powers granted in Congress and other parts of the Constitution, including Article four, with Ellie, which Ellie has written a, a great uh, law review piece about. So I think each of those powers uses different words. They were enacted at different times. We look at the powers in the amendments. Um, so I think uh, the non-delegation inquiry should change uh, depending on what power uh, is being spoken about. Great. So, Ellie, I want to give you a chance, since uh, Chad mentioned your work, to talk a little bit about your scholarship in the area. And then I want to return to the major questions doctrine, whether it can be reconciled with textualism. Absolutely. So this all dates back to Julian Mortensen and Nicholas Bagley, two professors at the University of Michigan, published what I really thought was a groundbreaking article in the Columbia Law Review saying the non-delegation doctrine is not originalist. And as part of their argument, they marshaled support from examples of what they called delegations at the founding, which were statutes that Congress passed that purported to delegate legislative power uh, in some form or fashion to the executive branch, or in the case of the Northwest Ordinance, which was passed in 1787 and ratified by the first Congress in 1789, uh, purported to grant a significant uh, tranche of legislative authority, including the authority to, to make criminal law, to the governor of the Northwest Territory. Uh, pursuant to you know the Northwest Ordinance, um, Congress was regulating, and in effect, it was delegating legislative power at the founding. So, what do we do with this? Right? Does this uh, does this establish that there was no non delegation doctrine at the founding? Um, and here is why I said no. And so I, I pushed back on the the Mortensen Bagley example and, and said, you know, this this piece has a limited scope. It's going after one of the few examples that they they brought about. But essentially what was going on in the Northwest Ordinance is that Congress was not legislating pursuant to its Article I powers. Uh, and so Article I's vesting clause, all legislative powers here and granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States, uh, is typically seen as the source of the non-delegation doctrine. What was happening in the Northwest Ordinance was that Congress was regulating pursuant to its Article Four power under what's called the Property Clause, which is that Congress shall have power to make all needful rules and regulations respecting the territory or the property in the United States. And given that the Northwest Territory at that time was a territory, Congress was, was merely regulating pursuant to a different power that if it is touched by the non-delegation doctrine, right, if there is a non-delegation doctrine in the Property Clause, it either is different than that of Article One, or there's more historical work to be done. But my my basic thesis is this uh, Northwest Ordinance shouldn't be taken to cast aspersions on the existence of a delegation or non-delegation doctrine within the vesting clause of Article One. I should also note, Ilan Worman had a, a good point on this um, as well, and, and Professor Squidieri, I, I know you've mentioned this as well in, in some pieces that you've written is that the delegation was also not to the executive branch. It was to a local government. And so instead of just the Article 4 issue, you also might say that the uh, upshot of the non-delegation doctrine is we're concerned about Congress delegating to co-equal branches of government, the judicial, but you know, in, in most cases we deal with today, the, the executive branch. Yes. And also, you know, obviously the legis uh, the legislative vesting clause is directed toward exercises of, of federal power and federal policy. And so to the extent that something other than legislating as a federal matter uh, is at issue, then 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 perhaps that is a relevant distinction. Um, and I'm glad that you gave a shout out to Elon Worman, who has, as you mentioned, has written on delegation, taking a different view, of course, from um, professors Mortensen and Bagley, and then Gary Lawson's also done work. And then um, in the GW Law Review several years back, I had a piece that just simply points out that perhaps intention with some of the um, arguments, which, which are right, that there are some statutes in the, enacted by the first Congress that seem to be quite broad. They may or may not be actually engaged in um, delegating legislative authority. They might be doing something else. But that one thing that gets overlooked is the customs laws and how detailed they were. And then all of the debates and thoughts about the initial members of Congress about why they were so concerned about those policies. And, you know, of course, the fact that legislation was done with specificity does not in any way 
prove that the legislators engaged in the specificity in the legislation thought it was constitutionally required. But there are some interesting discussions and you can see the geographic and regional interests that are at play with the customs laws, which might suggest a constitutional structural reason that we should consider delegation limitations to be embedded in the Constitution. Not only that if we think legislative power is imposing new policy burdens and therefore it was given completely to Congress, but why do we have the legislative structure and the electoral structure that we have in the first place with representatives from different districts and states throughout the country, different uh, senators representing states, because the states and local uh, areas, there might be different solutions that are better um, in one place than another. And so part of what was going to make federal legislation tough to reach a majority vote on is that all of these individuals representing varied geographic interests and regional interests were going to be having to come together. And only if there could be a majority agreement on a solution that could be fine nationally, keeping in mind all of those very conflicting interests, at least in the custom space, would there be law? And so you get a very different flavor of electoral representation when you've got Congress acting divided between its two houses than you get when you have an administrative agency that's headed by an official that's not been elected at all. And even as Justice Kagan points out, which is correct, even when the agency official is directly accountable to the president through um, the president's ability to direct that person or fire them. The president, of course, is elected. But again, that's one individual representing a national body. And so it's just a different, again, flavor and kind of interest than needing to get majority support from people who are actually in a more direct, granular way, representing the interest of states um, across the country. All right. So we are coming to the end of our time here. Um, and perhaps both of you will resist the question. But I mean, the the majority opinion, and I take it Justice Gorsuch writing his concurrence, seem to believe that, or at least are not bothered by Justice Kagan's accusations, that they're not textualists, and seem to think that what they're doing is actually the legitimate constitutional mode of interpretation. So while the major questions doctrine definitely has language at times where the court is saying, well, we're applying this in extraordinary circumstances, or to issues of national political significance, maybe, maybe it'd be more textual if they applied the doctrine to all legislation. But is it not just most simply the court saying, when we have really big issues at stake, we're going to be extra careful to make sure that what the agency is doing is within the four corners of the statute. The court actually does not go so far as to do what we sometimes think are required in clear statement rules. And I think this is sort of an important distinction. Often clear statement rules are thought to mean that a statute has to actually explicitly authorize or reach the conclusion that the litigants are arguing for, almost like an express statement rule. And if that were the case, it would basically mean that here the EPA could not promulgate a regulation that would shut down a coal-powered plant unless the statute actually said, and you have authority to impose standards that would close down a coal-powered plant, which of course seems like a sort of mind-numbingly ridiculous level of detail to expect Congress to put in a statute. Perhaps, maybe some would disagree. The court doesn't suggest that it has to be that specific. It says clear statement, but it seems to almost be suggesting that you just ordinarily need to be able to understand the text that way. You can't parse something new and novel and big that's attenuated from this outdated text. So if, if the court were to apply that interpretive principle to everything and weren't to suggest that we're just a thumb on the scale for outdated statutes or big issues, would it be just simply consistent with statutory interpretation and the requirement that we make Congress um, impose the policies rather than agencies? I think that distinction is precisely the one I take issue with. I think if the court were, you know, extra careful, if all statutes, I think that would be consistent. Uh, I think the problem that I have is when the court approaches a question and says, let's first ask if this is politically significant. Uh, I don't think that's appropriate uh, judicial inquiry, I don't, and I don't think it's helpful. Um, again, you know, I, I think that a non-delegation inquiry should be the correct inquiry, so I think the court should focus on that because, certainly each of these cases is important to litigants uh, in each case, right? So determining which litigants might raise more important questions than the other, I don't think is, the, is the, the correct inquiry. However, the one exception might be with the court, at, with their discretion at the cert stage. If the court, barring from uh, then Professor uh, Scalia, uh, he had a piece of EEI called a note on the Benzene case. 
he essentially says the Supreme Court should kind of knock off a statute every now and then on non-delegation grounds to kind of keep keep Congress keep on their toes. Yeah, exactly. He was kind of a little, little tongue in cheek. But the court, if they wanted to consider the majorness of an issue, they can do that in their discretionary docket when determining which cases to take on through cert. And lower courts can do a similar thing when determining which cases to consider uh, on bond. Well, I take your point about the search stage. And so for those uh, listeners who um, are not as focused on Supreme Court litigation, of course, the Supreme Court doesn't have to hear most of the cases that come before it. It has a just what we call a discretionary docket. It can choose which cases it thinks are sufficiently important. And Congress has not, there's no, there's no actually clear legal authority mandating that the court necessarily take issues that check certain boxes or meet certain metrics. So the court could certainly, if it reached a statutory interpretation case where a, an agency regulation might be uh, found to be unlawful, decide it's only going to take those ones that are particularly uh, important and in that way import a major questions doctrine. And so only take a close look at those statutes. I do want to point out, though, that, I mean, because you 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 have said now uh, multiple times that your what you think the more constitutional approach would be is to look first at the issue of non-delegation. And I just want to point out for listeners that that um, that that may be Right. And certainly an approach that scholars and you in particular have talked about, although it is a separate, perhaps, claim. One could, in other words, if one believes there's a robust non-delegation doctrine, um, believe that a statute is unconstitutional because if it's because it either does, in fact, give away legislative power to an agency or because of the danger that we don't want it to uh, the Congress to be giving its legislative power away. We need to interpret the statute with that in mind and not interpret it to legitimately be giving that power away. However, there's a separate question that I think specifically the court was looking at in West Virginia versus EPA, which is regardless of what, of whether it was constitutional or not, we don't, I don't even think the court acknowledges that anybody asked them to examine that. Um, is what the agency was doing within the text of the statute, whether it delegates broad authority or not. So correct me. So does anybody, did I, did I mischaracterize anything you were saying in that chat? I want to give you a chance to respond. No, I think you're right. They, they are, uh, the court has made clear they are distinct inquiries. Um, I just think the better approach would say, one, use norm, norm, normal statutory tools interpretation. If the agency has the authority, then maybe check non-delegation and just skip the major questions entirely. And Ellie, any final words for our listeners? Yeah, I, I think what's going on here is is really uh, the canon of major questions is kind of smuggled in through the canon of constitutional avoidance. Now, it's true that in, in all major questions cases, you might not always have a non-delegation issue, but I think there is some significant overlap between the two. And my sense is, is two things probably are going on with major questions. One is if we can decide a case on major questions grounds and say that that Congress actually did not grant as capacious or a broad an authority to the agency as the agency claims, usually, not always, but usually, that means that the, the delegation problem can be cured through interpretation of the statute. And then the second thing is, it seems as though the, the major questions doctrine can act as a sort of triage for the non-delegation issues, where if we only really proceed to the delegation inquiry through uh, the first asking the question, is this a major issue? Um, then you might be able to more clearly define the, the cases in which we're going to do delegation. Now, I don't know that that's legitimate. You know, the, the vesting clause of Article One doesn't say all legislative powers here and granted are vested in a Congress when the issue is really significant or it's of national importance. Um, but at the same time, I, I think it's it's worthwhile to, to think through what the court is doing. I'll, I'll actually end on, there was a tweet that uh, Kristen Hickman from Minnesota Law put out yesterday that I thought was great. And she said, uh, take on West Virginia v. EPA. The Supreme Court is, tweet, is treating the major questions doctrine as a canon of construction, not as constitutional interpretation. In other words, Congress didn't give EPA the authority to adopt the regulations at issue. It's not that Congress can't give the EPA that authority. It just didn't in this statute. All right. Well, thank you for those last words. Thank you both for joining us. This was fascinating, a momentous or a, a significant end to a momentous term. And hopefully you all will join us again on Pulse of the Court here with the Gray Center uh, for the study of the administrative state. Have a great Fourth of July weekend, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.